Welcome to the Untangled Faith Podcast. In today's episode, I am joined by author and epidemiologist, Dr. Emily Smith. You may know her as the friendly neighbor epidemiologist. What you might not know is that speaking out for what she knew to be right had a high cost for her family. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Before we get into the show, I want to remind you that I'll be sharing an episode soon to celebrate that we have made it to 100 episodes. I would love to include your voice in that episode, and I will share more about that at the end of this episode. Okay, back to today's episode. In early 2020, when the first hints of a new novel virus starting to impact the world made its way to Emily Smith, she paid attention. As an epidemiologist, she was uniquely positioned to understand and translate scary and unintelligible medical information. So she started a Facebook page, The Friendly Neighbor Epidemiologist. Over the following months, Emily did her best to share information and faced a lot of painful and scary pushback in her desire to encourage people to care for their fellow neighbors. I am so grateful to introduce you all to Emily if you haven't already met her. Here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Smith. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the Untangled Faith Podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here for sure. I have been reading your book. I'm so thankful that, I don't know if as a publicist or whoever it was that reached out to me and said, hey, Emily has a book. Can she come on your podcast? I said, yes, please. (laughs) I would love to talk to her. I am one of the people that stumbled across your Facebook. Oh, yeah. In 2020, my listeners who you probably know from the voiceover by now that Emily had the Friendly Neighborhood Epidemiologist Facebook page, which became kind of a place for people to like see like what's happening yeah <laughs> i'm not an epidemiologist can someone explain Help. it can someone <laughs> please tell me what to do how to how to understand all the things that are happening in the world and so in all the things that have happened in the last couple of years you wrote a book yes and that book is coming out very soon so give us like the, just a brief overview like what brought you to be an author, Emily? How did you get to this point today? How did you end up on this podcast today? <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> and there, I, I do want to say I'm the friendly neighbor epidemiologist, not neighborhood. Oh, yes. There's more than one, right? There are two of us. Yes. Yeah. And she's lovely, by the way, so, but we would get mixed up. So I just thought I'd just in case. And thanks for following from, I mean, it still is mind boggling to me when I get to meet people in real life. I know that that sounds funny because there's just a lot of people at this point, but it's just so nice to not only have that, but then for people to say thank you or that they like me. I mean, there was just an onslaught. I'm sure we'll talk about that and where it was quite the opposite. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Where did I get to, I mean, the author part, I I think I've always wanted to write a book. I mean, I just grew up loving Anna Green Gables and Joe Marsh with the the little women. So I think I just wanted to, but you know, you just kind of shelf that once you hit college and everything and you have to pay the bills, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then this is going to be like what you see in the movies where they do it when they retire. And yeah. <laughs> but when the Facebook page kind of blew up, I was just contacted by an agent 
And I thought it was, I was just convinced it was spam because there were a lot of people at that time contacting me for some pretty awful harassment and scary threats that I just trusted no one. Um, so I just was convinced she spam. And thankfully, she is not at all. She's just lovely. And she basically asked, do you want to put this type, you know, the sentiment, I love your neighbor into a book? And I was like, yes, because at that time I needed the long form of writing. You know, I had been writing 500 posts nearly daily, once a day, twice a day in the height of the pandemic. So I think I was ready to pull back and take a breather. But that's how the book came to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if if you, people that are listening, if you want to be an author, this is not how it happens normally. <laughs> I don't know. Although I do have to say, it's not like you had like this easy life, this easy experience. Right. And all of a sudden you have a book that you can, like you were in the thick of some really heavy, hard things that came from having this platform as well. And to have something like beautiful and sense-making come from it is really lovely. But generally, if somebody wants to write a book, they think through like, what's my book? How can I write a book proposal? How can I figure out what my, you know, yeah, what it's going to be about and what all the, you know, like to start with somebody saying, Hey, it looks like you're interested yes. in this. <laughs> and we want to publish that book. That's, that's nice. That's a little bit of like a, okay, we just skipped step one. Yes. Now let's get to the real, let's get to the work. <laughs> yeah. I often tell people go viral. If you're going to go viral, do it for makeup. Or mm. shoes. I mean, something as benign, kind of benign. I mean, people will still be weird. But this going, I mean, I just would not recommend the growth yeah. that I saw. Ooh. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. But Say more about that because in the podcasting world, I have a lot of podcast friends. And we recently were talking, a friend of mine asked a group that we're in, like, how would you feel if all of a sudden you went viral? <laughs> and, and I said... Oh terrified. Yeah. And like, I want to shut it all down. Tell me what are some of the pitfalls of, of going viral? What have been some of the costs for you? Oh, good gracious. So I think you are right on the money of going terrified and uh oh, <laughs> I mean, all of that. Maybe I could just, you know, I started the Friendly Neighbor Epidemiology page well, well at the very beginning of the pandemic. And that was just because I was getting people asking questions that I knew, like real life neighbors and family, you know, what does flatten the curve mean? Do we need to be worried about Wuhan? What does a lockdown look like? Do I need to buy a billion rolls of toilet paper? <laughs> and so I just started that. Yeah. And it was during a season of like two weeks where we were all sort of together. <laughs> yes, for sure. However long that lasted, it wasn't very long, but there was a little bit of like, all right, let's do this together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Per and that's why I named it. I named it Friendly just because I'm just, I just overhelp and over, I'm so sorry if I sit by you on a plane. I've just always been friendly and joyful, but then neighbor, because I, I as an epidemiologist knew that something like COVID was going to be different than other diseases like Ebola. Um, Ebola is terrible, but generally, you know, when somebody is sick and contagious, so it's a little bit easier to contain COVID. It was not that. And I just knew, I knew what was coming. And that's one of the worst parts about thinking about those early days. So I was really just trying to be friendly and helpful. 
And then they would share it with their friends. I was talking with my son. He's 12 now. But he said, Mom, do you remember when you hit 500? Because I would tell my family at the supper table, you know, guys, there's like 20 comments on here. Yeah. <laughs> and and I answered them all in long form. Yes, because I just loved that. And he said, do you remember when you got to 50? And then when I hit 100, I didn't see the growth at the time because I was just trying to keep up with the pandemic and you know, the politics around it. So to the question of what happens if you go viral, yeah. I mean, you are extremely exposed all of a sudden with no prep. And that's the middle part of the book is about that. You know, if you're going to act like your neighbor uh, or you're going to love your neighbor and act like good global neighbors in the world, there will be a cost to it. And it might not be as dramatic a mind, but there will be a cost. When you go viral for being a good neighbor, a good Samaritan, that it's just going to come with a cost. And had I known what was coming, I would have been more prepared. I am incredibly more prepared now. The word, yeah, it's funny that viral <laughs> happens <Yeah>. along <laughs> with a virus. And sure. <laughs> if you think about it, people don't really want a virus, no. right? No. And my kids, you know, they're both tweens and a teenager. And a lot of their friends have ambitions to be influencers and, you know, YouTubers. And they just know from that's not even negotiable. You can't negotiate that with me at all. You're just that's just a no, a hard no for us. And but they've seen it. I mean, they've seen us and they've lived it of what it means to go viral. And I'm I am just not. I would much rather be in the back or like support people. I don't really mind public speaking, but I certainly don't want to do it every day. Yeah. So that, that part was hard too. I appreciate you speaking into that. Cause I think yeah. there is sort of a, a misconception of like, I, I could just, everything would be better. Oh goodness. <laughs> no, <laughs> everything would be so awesome. Yeah. I would say everything would be more everything yeah. just whatever you're experiencing is more yeah. uh, the good is amplified and the bad is is amplified and yeah it feels like a heavy a heavy thing to me it's really yes all consuming it can become your book is the science of the good samaritan and i love that you kind of weave these themes of the experiences in your life through the lens of your love of science yeah, from like very young and, and how it just captured your attention and what that has meant for you and, and loving your neighbor. And so tell us a little bit about your, your experience with science and from yeah. young and like, like some of those stories just made me laugh. Your, your science fair experience, <laughs> your modeling experience. Yes. Oh, no, like, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, thank you. What a silly. <laughs> so for those that are listening, if you get the print book, you get to see these pictures, a couple of pictures we scattered throughout. And one of them is my science fair board. But I've, I've just always loved learning. And I mean, always gravitated towards science and math research. I've just loved that. And I, my parents were incredible that they didn't push, you know, ambition and you have to be top of the top. I just, I remember from a really young age, just wanting to be faithful. 
Mm-hmm. And to me, that meant I'm going to work to the glory of God, which can skew unhealthy for sure yeah. <laughs> with mm-hmm. just hustle. But I've just loved that. So then you fast forward through high school and I grew up in a tiny town, lovely town, but not a lot of opportunities. And my high school teacher, Mr. Acosta, he introduced DNA. Never heard about it before. And you would have thought he put the Backstreet Boys up there or something, or like NSYNC <laughs> is there, or, or like Taylor Swift for you youngins. Yes. What in the world? I So I went up to him after class and just asked him, probably as excited as it sounds, what is that? And how can I know more? <laughs> so he gave me a college text, genetics textbook, bless it. And you better believe I wrote, I read that whole thing, but I read it. I finished it. I remember on a band trip to an out of town football game, which I don't, <laughs> that's like double nerdy of band and science. <laughs> that's right. But he, I think he just saw that. And thankfully he said, Oh, Emily needs to, to talk with people that love it just as much as she does. So he connected me with Texas Tech University. As a 15-year-old, I started doing research there in a lab that he knew of. And so I spent three years doing that. And so the board you're talking about, when it got to my senior year, the board you can get at Staples or Walmart, you know, the Those tri-fold things, yes. the bane of every parent's existence. <laughs> oh my gosh, well, I think I won this one. So I'm going to make parents happy. I asked my dad, I said, dad, I need like triple that size. And he made it with his buddy out of plywood with little pockets in between the hinges so you could get double the amount of data, you know, for both of those hinges. And he carried the, it was, I couldn't carry it, but he would carry it to my science fairs. It was just lovely. You had so so much to say. You had so (laughs) much to say. I was so excited (laughs) about it. Typical trifold was not going to be enough. No. You, You tell about going to different like science fair competitions, which I have to tell you, not being a science person, I did not know this was a thing, Emily. <laughs> but that you were you went to one, you had done all this work and you stood yeah. there and the judges really didn't even come and talk to you. Yeah. What did you what did you hear from when somebody came and talked to you? Yeah, this was my junior year and I was actually maybe it was my senior. Anyways, one of the final ones that I did and I was ready to go. I had a big old three ring, huge binder with like all of my data for any questions they had, but I probably had it memorized. And I set the board up and I realized, you know, a couple of hours in, no one's coming to talk to you. And this was at regional. They should have seen the board. Anybody should have for sure. But then, <laughs> I mean, the project was just so good. And finally, a female judge came up to me, probably out of just compassion, maybe solidarity. And she said, I just need you to know that the judges all got together and, you know, they were all men and her, and they just decided that a 16 year old girl couldn't do the work that you did and that you look more like a model than a scientist because I'm tall and I have blonde hair. I smile. I'm sure, you know, that's why, but so I lost, you know, I lost that one and I was devastated. So it took a couple of weeks and my the science teacher, Mrs. Dodd, and my parents said, hey, there's another type of competition. Why don't you do that? So my parents lugged the board to those and I ended up winning that one. Plus those people that leaned in and were like, hey, they can't see it. Someone else is going to be able to see that. Yeah. 
yeah, you didn't look like a scientist up there. You didn't yeah. look right at the right place. But they they helped you bring it somewhere else. I was telling my husband, like, I'm like, I was just reading the chapter and I was like, and they didn't even look at her board. This poor thing. <laughs> I had my they thought she was a model. Right. Was like, but then she said later on, right the, the good. modeling. I did. Data modeling. Data modeling. Yes, that <laughs> line is like the only mic drop comeback that I have because I am not a person like that. <laughs> it just made me so happy. You're like, good. Yeah, I did a different kind of modeling yes. with data. My, yes. my son is going into data science. So I think he, oh, he I'm, I can't wait to share this book with him. He I went and talked at my son's school a couple of years ago, you know, like on career day, third grade. And I walk in and another little boy in the room said, you look like a nerd. And the, the teacher was so embarrassed. And I, I just automatically said, I am. I, but I use it. You know, I'm a girl scientist and I use it for good for the world. And this little bitty girl on the back said, you're a girl scientist? Like she hadn't seen it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's still around. I love that you showed her though. This is possible. Yeah. Right. This is possible. Your options aren't, you know, when I was growing up, I'm, I'm Gen X, like, are you going to yeah. be a secretary? Sure. <laughs> are you going to be a nurse? Yes. <laughs> well, and then the faith world, I am a pastor's wife. So you're going to play the piano. You're oh, going yeah. to children's ministry. <laughs> I, I worked under a gal and I worked in, I worked in higher ed for a little while and her uh -huh. husband was a pastor for a short period of time. And if anybody has been in the faith world, they know this thing of when when at the time, mostly men, 99.9% .9 men going to like candidate for a pastor job brings the wife and oh, like, so, sure. you know, Linda was there with her husband and like the committee was like, and what are you going to play on the piano? Yes. <laughs> he was like, oh, I don't play. <laughs> How about chopsticks? <laughs> so you weren't showing up playing the piano. No, I'm showing up. Oh, you could play the PhD. piano. But. I can. Yes, yeah. but I. That's not a requirement for sure. Yeah, I wrote down some notes as I was reading your book, and you said, again, this is about the Good Samaritan, and you said this question that was asked that was wrong, <laughs> is, well, I wrote, I wrote it down. We have to recognize that asking who is my neighbor, is the wrong one. It's the one about being just good enough. The right one is, am I a neighbor? What did you learn as you, you know, dug into your experience with that? So that story, you know, most of the listeners will be really well aware of that story, but I don't know if I'd ever backed up of what preceded the Good Samaritan story. And you have this man who comes up to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? You know, I'm sure they're having a different, a longer conversation there, but Instead of answering him, Jesus, like judo, you know, karate him with a story, which is a parable, kind of like what he does anyways. And so he tells the Good Samaritan story about two men who walk by the side of the road or a man who was on the side of the road. And, you know, they symbolize power and privilege at the time. And then you have the Samaritan who finally stops. And not only does he stop, he bandages wounds, he takes him to the place to recover and pays for all of it. And then Jesus returns to that original person who asked the question and said, now who was the neighbor? Hmm. And I think that the heart positions are too different because who is my neighbor? I mean, you could say that kind of cocky or 
what is good enough to be good enough? Because I've got my life to live, right? How much is... Yeah. The check the box to say I was the good neighbor. I'm going to tie 10%. I'm going to give money at Thanksgiving. Is that good enough, basically? Now, we don't know his voice inflection, but that's what I'm reading into it. And then Jesus said, who was the neighbor? Like not who is the neighbor, who acted? And the the act of neighboring was so holistic, overindulgent than just merely tithing 10% or barely helping. So I think the heart positioning is is different. And the whole first part of the book on centering is how do we get our hearts to act more like the Good Samaritan intrinsically, where we just stop? Because he did and the other two didn't. And why? Um, there's yeah. probably a myriad number of reasons, but that something made that man stop. And I think it's because he just was living a life of neighboring instead of it being who, who is my neighbor? You know, I don't, you don't, we don't know if those other two were just walking by going, is, is that him or is it this one? Or do I have time? Yeah. I love how you talked about centering and another, another term you use a lot in the book is othering. I have a friend who has a book coming out within the next year or so, I think, called Othered. And so I cannot wait for no. her to read this. And be like, she's she's talking about a lot of the things that you say. And yeah. one thing I think is so interesting is and that you point out is how being a good neighbor really is tied into us being able to lean in to see things and learn things that we didn't realize. Yeah. Because of where we were born and the situation that we are in the world, we just don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And so tell me about how you were able to recognize the othering and sort of learn to see beyond the perspective that you you have in your own life. Mm-hmm. You know, I just grew up in the church too, in a charismatic church. And so we were the home where a lot of the missionaries came and stayed while they were on furlough. And I, I remember a very, very young age, just asking them lots of questions of what they were doing. And, you know, I'd read the books on Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael, and I knew the world was bigger than my little town. So I just wanted to know everything I could about it. So it just started out with reading. And there's the nerdy part of it, too, was just reading people's stories. But then, you know, when you're friends with people who are don't worship like you, have a different point of worldview, certainly a different socioeconomic status or background or, you know, any of those factors, it changes you if you listen to it. You can walk by, you know, it, it's not a natural thing for everybody. But if we stop, that's what I'm trying to get across in that centering part of how do we align our hearts so we just stop more and listen. I think especially in the white church, evangelical church in America, we're terrible at listening because we've always had the mic. And I think for a time, it would just be nice to just listen a little bit to voices who have not been listened to before. And that's reading or YouTube or whatever you want to do it. But for me, it's been friendship and meeting people and going to their homes and just being really, really curious because then you can't. You can't other an entire group of people when they're your friends walking right beside you. Yeah, There's a part of the book where I talk about the, if you notice your friend is walking beside you without shoes or you're the one without shoes, if you're friends, you're going to say something about that. 
if you're not fringe, you might just move to a different side of the path. So I think there's deep humility. And, you know, we see that too, I think, modeled in Jesus. Because when he centered people, it wasn't who you would expect. It was like children, probably disruptive kids, (laughs) because that's what kids do. It was the woman who was bleeding and it spent all of her money. She was medically impoverished. That is that is what I work on or communities who are medically impoverished now. And she's the first one I probably read about. When he talks his first sermon, when who he centers, he could have I think he could have really used that opportunity to talk about power. But instead he talks about the oppressed and the captives. And you know, I, he just flips the table. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't other. There is also this theme in there. Obviously, like you are a scientist. Like this is something mm-hmm. that God has given you this great love for science. And as you learned more, as you dug into and followed this passion that you had, you started learning about health and and like history of how health has worked yeah. and who who gets help when it comes to healthcare and who doesn't and like how certain things have been discovered and like who was, you know, practiced on. What did you learn about being a good neighbor and just about justice and injustice mm-hmm. in your studies of of health? Yeah, that's a I love that question. What did I learn? I learned we we know we don't know more than what we do. And there's a you know, I think during COVID a lot of people saw that too because for the first time at least here in America, people were seeing systemic racism and structural violence or poverty and health inequities for the first time. It always had been there, but it really was unearthed and then just thrown into our neighborhoods for better or for worse. And so I think that's a lot of the, why the book was birthed because they were asking what's next. Now that we know, what do we do? So what have I learned? I've learned that centering is about you know, giving money and donating food, all of that is wonderful. And also you will hear that thread, both and, and also, yeah. And also. Mm -hmm. The and also, what does the rest of our life look like? How do we spend the rest of our money? Do we take into account just the privilege that most of us have to even access care? You know, I think one of the powerful stories Well, there's a couple in there that I I think have really resonated with the early readers. And one of them was, if you go back to 1884, there were 14 white men from all high-income countries that got around a horseshoe table with this huge map of Africa on the back wall. You can Google it. It's called the Great Scramble, uh, just to get a visual. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that meeting, well, by the way, no one from Africa was there the Sultan of Zanzibar asked to come and was denied entry. So what they were trying to do is basically who's going to colonize what part of the continent, what country is going to get what. So they sliced and diced the country into, you know, Belgium and the U.S. and Europe and all of these different countries of who is going to go. What that did, though, is it it separated 10% of the the natural, the normal, the existing ethnic groups at the time into, you know, two different countries. And so I talk about my work, which is in Somaliland, which is part of Somalia, but they were colonized by two very different 
countries. And to this day, that has ramifications throughout the continent of, you know, the poorest countries, some of the most, the ones that have a lot of the civil unrest and war are the countries that were spliced and diced. And I think that it is really important for Christians to understand that because then we get rid of the othering or the shaming words, words like, well, it's just a poor country, or Mm. I've heard in the church, why don't they work harder? It Mm. is their fault they don't have a job. This is here in the U.S. too, right? Yeah, yeah. So much shame when if you go back, it is not all of their fault. Now for a quick break. This episode of the Untangled Faith podcast is sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Sometimes even after working through an issue for a while and taking a break from counseling, we find ourselves needing a little extra help again. That's been my recent experience with therapy. It was time for a tune-up. Maybe you can relate. Faithful Counseling can help you find a therapist that works for you. With more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states, it's easy and free to change counselors until you find the right fit. Whether you are struggling with family conflicts, trauma, anxiety, stress, or depression, Faithful Counseling can match you with a therapist who can help. Visit faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled, and you can get 10% off your first month. This link now redirects to BetterHelp, the parent company of Faithful Counseling, and will still match you with a therapist who is right for you based on your preferences. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for sponsoring this episode. Now back to the show. Yeah, I also tell the story of when I had my second child, I had preeclampsia, very severe, all of a sudden. So he came real early. And then I was in the hospital multiple times with, you know, stroke risk uh, because of the high blood pressure. But I had insurance. I had a nest egg so I could pay for it. He had a NICU to go to. And we both lived. I tell the story of the woman, of a woman in Burundi who is my equivalent, just a mom you know, trying to do her best, goes into labor early, a month early because of preeclampsia and has to walk three, four, five hours pregnant in labor Mm -hmm. to the nearest health facility. If she gets there, they don't have the diagnostic testing that they need for preeclampsia. She probably doesn't have the money to even pay for that. And I chose Burundi because it is one of those countries that you can go back to the great scramble table and kind of trace its lineage of now of what it looks like nowadays. Same with Somaliland. So if that woman dies, it is of no fault of her own. Right. It is the systems and the structures around her, but not just today. It's years and years and years past. You look at generational wealth here in the U.S. and redlining. You know, you, there are some neighborhoods here in Durham where I live where if they were redlined, you know, decades ago, they're worth right now is thousands, tens of thousands of dollars lower than being in a white neighborhood, simply because of a policy that took place decades ago. So I think as Christians, I think being like a good Samaritan and not othering is recognizing their history, recognizing yeah. their structural violence that, you know, we likely haven't seen before. But I think when we do, we stop on the side of the road, hopefully. And it makes, it helps us love them better. Yeah. I kept like writing things down as I was reading saying, I didn't know. Like I just, I got on my boxer. I was like, did you know that the pulse oximeter was like yes. calibrated to like <laughs> white light people? Skin? And what did that mean? Like the ramifications for that. Yeah. Do you ever wish you didn't know things 
like when you know something, you can't unknow it. Like you have this yeah. like moment of like, I didn't know it was broken. Now I do know it. Like lots of things are broken and yeah. I can't unknow it. Like, do you wish you didn't? Like, and like what happens at that point? Like, tell me about that point yeah. of like, oh shoot. Yeah. What now? I don't think I do just I'm I just have a whole I have too much empathy. Yeah. So I don't I don't think you're like, so. Give me all the information. That's right. <laughs> Get the data points and let's go do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Two, what I so I don't think I react that way. I think I react more of I can't do it all and neither can one other person. And so what can I do? Yeah. You know, there's I don't know if you've gotten to the the back part of the book, yeah. which is on courage. You're talking about Nehemiah. I wrote down your whole, I wrote a whole paragraph quote from you. Yes. Talk about that. Oh, lovely. That was one of my favorites to write, but because it's one of my favorite stories too. But you know, when you get to the chapter one of Nehemiah, at the very end of the chapter, he says, I'm a cupbearer to the king, which in my Bible, I've written, you know, uh, 2003, I'm a new mom, you know, 2016, graduated with my PhD. These like, identifications of who we are. And then you flip the page and he goes to build the wall back and he he gathers a lot of people together and stuff. And so they get working and then you get the like wackadoodles of Sandalot and Tobias who come over and they try to distract him with, there are people talking about you. You need to go defend yourself stuff. I mean, anybody would be like, okay, I'm going to fight. He didn't take the bait though. And so they came with a sneak attack afterwards and said, how about you just come for coffee and let's just talk about what you're doing. That is my, it's, you know, theologians don't yell at me right now, but that's what I heard. Yes, yes. And the first one, which is more blatant, is a pivot. But the other one is too, it's just at a a lower degree, like a 10% instead of a 50. But over time, they're going to get to the same spot from where you were. So all that to say, they're both distractions. And what he said was, I'm doing a great work. I'm not coming down. Oh, you bet that my husband, he will text me that all the time. Yeah. Of you are doing a good work. Don't come down for like the naysayers. But also I wrote the chapter because I have a feeling that people are going to read it just because they are lovely, good people. Yeah. And you can easily become overwhelmed with, I mean, I do poverty and children's health in very resource poor settings, but then I hear about the climate change and that affects that group as well. And then I hear about hunger here in North Carolina. And I mean, just add on all these topics and they all matter, but it anchors me of what is my great work that I'm not coming down for. So that, I think that is my reaction to now that you know, it might be yours to change. Um, it also might be yours to find a friend who's doing that to link arms with. Yeah. Yeah, to not be so overwhelmed. How do you know what your your thing is? How do you know yeah. what your carrying the cup for the king looks like? Or if it's the wall building or like, yeah. and what is a distraction? Was there like a hint to like, I don't know some secret, some secret handshake or secret something. Sauce. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think time does that for us yeah. of 
Yeah, because I, I, when I started my master's in epidemiology, day one, my favorite professor asked all of us, you know, what do you want to do? And I said something probably like, I just want to help everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, how do you do that? I have no idea. So yeah. now I've gotten more and more clear on that, but also my natural proclivities and giftings. I, I feel like time has helped harness that into, okay, this is what I'm doing and what I'm good at. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, during the pandemic, when I was speaking out against Christian nationalism, when the riot happened, and that was another inflection point where I went viral for, for the good reasons, but with a lot of ramifications, yeah. my husband did very gently say, you know, if you keep speaking into the evangelical space at this pace, it, you can grow, you know, that into that, almost being like a, a figurehead or a leader in that space. Or you can keep kind of talking about the global aspects of this and COVID vaccine inequalities and poverty. So don't mm-hmm. lose the in- inequity for another good thing that is not yours to fight. That chapter opens with, you don't have to go to every fight you're invited to. Yeah. And I I, nearly weekly, I tell him, thank you for that. Because I, I would much rather be in this natural point of what I'm doing right now, instead of in the whatever world I would have landed in. Yeah. There are a lot of worthy causes in the world. For sure. We are, we have limited resources. Yeah. Um, And like, given our, where we are in the world, what our family situation looks like what all the things you know it it really sets those guidelines and boundaries of like what we have um yeah and what we have to give so i i appreciate that so much because i think there are people that are like there are so many hard things in the world and they're just exhausted with the whole and overwhelmed with all of it and so i i love that permission to say you don't have to fight every battle you aren't called to do all the things. Although I think it is, it can be really hard for people that are justice minded mm-hmm. or like now that I've seen, I got to do something, but I think it is doing something to encourage somebody that is in the space. Yeah. It's like really like, I don't need to go get my PhD. I don't need to mm-hmm. study epidemiology to say, here are some people I really trust in that space and that are working with data yeah. and like trying to help you understand it in a way that is hopefully not agenda driven and yeah by anything more than wanting what is best for the world that's going to get people to the information they need a whole lot faster than if I tried to do it all myself yeah and so maybe framing it that way is good like it's more helpful yeah. for me to point to people whose lane that is than to like jump into every lane back and forth right and honoring the lanes that we're in or that others are in too cuz I I do talk about what does it look like to be a neighbor. It doesn't have to be these big extravagant things, you know. If it's just the holy work of neighboring, mm-hmm. and or it, and that could be our children, you know, that could be just rocking the kid at two a.m. that will not sleep, but then raising them up to not other others or yeah. justice people that way. And so I think when we take the pressure off to be all or be what we see on social media or something, then we can actually just enter into who we are. Tell me about the cost of, of running in your lane and being faithful in a lane that has required saying things that people don't necessarily want to hear. 
and make people uncomfortable. Tell me about that cost. Yes. You're talking about the middle part of the book, which is the shortest section. It's two chapters because I it's kind of all I had in me. Yeah. I did the audiobook recording. It could be its it. own it could be its own book, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I re- I read it on the audiobook and I realized how it still feels to me so messy and mm-hmm. yeah, hard and what to say and not to say, but you know, it when I went viral the first time was talking about this is in late 2020 when people were starting to say in the church, have faith, not fear, which really meant come back to church, sing your guts out, you know, don't wear a mask type stuff. And I was going, what is happening? Because I, at the beginning, there was so much solidarity at the church, at my own church. I spoke at mine on a video call to all the congregants on this is what it's going to look like for us. So I was, and then I saw what everybody else did where especially in the evangelical world. At the time, I was in the heart of Texas, too. So that is some context here of like Mm -hmm. the belly of it. And I just challenged that faith over fear. I said, I think actually Jesus would wear a mask. He would stay home. And here is why. And a couple of days after that, we got our first threat at the house written in like black and red marker left in the mailbox. And I am as suburbia normal as possible, Mm -hmm. incredibly unknown (laughs) at the time. And so to get that, and you know, it was, it was like, you need to be punished type stuff. And there's uh, laced with the mark of the beast. I mean, just all the religion stuff. A couple of weeks after that, we would see on the TV that there was a far right group with the same type of colors on their signs Mm. and it looked, you know, similar. We'll never know. But from then on started a pretty severe receipt of either threats like that, threats against my children. Think pictures of guns sent to us with like weird Holocaust imagery. And, you know, you should be taken down as long as with the kids. And it's different when it comes from behind a screen. And I mean, it is horrible and incredibly scary. It's another thing when it comes to your door. And I was getting things from people I knew in real life, like real neighborhood people and people that I worshiped with. And so it was, it was devastating, you know, that we couldn't let our kids go walk outside alone. We had police security and a lot of epidemiologists were receiving stuff like this too. So I don't think mine is abnormal. I do think that the proximity to where it was given, you know, at the house and stuff was abnormal just because I was in the belly of it. So it was, it was just terrible. I mean, we left a faith community. I've also felt like I was losing a faith tradition that I had spent 40 years just loving. Uh, This is the point in the podcast where I always tear up. So you know, at the prayer rally in Washington, D.C. in November 2020, this was the height of that awful surge. I saw people like Michael W. Smith and Franklin Graham, which I had been speaking out against Franklin for a while anyways. Yeah. Um, but Michael W. Smith, no. And I grew up in the charismatic world, so you see all these Bethel groups. And then the Bible is just held up in the middle of it. 
and I could not wrap my mind around it. So it just felt like it all crumbled. Yeah. Uh, and then we lose a faith community. I mean, my, my husband was a pastor there on staff. And so it, it was just incredibly un, so it felt like when the, when I was holding onto the rope and it finally broke, the floor wasn't there because then my health just said no more. Like my body mm-hmm. after Easter in 2021, I had done a big push there. I'm talking about vaccines. We moved to North Carolina during that time and my body just shut down with unrelenting migraines that didn't respond to anything for 15 months. Wow. Yeah. And it's just six months in bed. And I, I didn't even take a multivitamin with before that. So I never had anything. And I'm, I feel really grateful for that because now I understand chronic disease more, chronic illness. Um, and so that was my body's response to it. And so the cost might not be as dramatic as that for people, but for me, it has been life flipped upside down. Yeah. Why do you think there was such resistance to public health measures yeah. that were more conservative in the in the conservative world? Like what what? If you were to guess, I know you can't, yeah. you don't know for sure, you're a data person. Why do you think there was such resistance to that in our I, Well, I kind of wonder if we do know the answer. I think who we vote for matters. Mm-hmm. Had we had New Zealand or Taiwan's leadership during, like they had the same pandemic that everybody else did too. Yet population-wise, they did an incredibly better job at not only infections, but very low numbers of low COVID, very low numbers of death. So I think leadership matters. I think when you hear from the top leader that just have faith, maybe not trust the vaccine, even doing some type of sneak attack on it, you know, not coming out fully, but just not taking it seriously, it people listen. I just think who we vote for matters more. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I, I live in the Nashville area. So I, I wonder too, if some of this is this fear that like, if we don't get back to it, how do we make a living? How do we, like, if we don't get back to normal touring and getting the people into these buildings that we just built, our, you know, we just did a capital campaign for a church or whatever. We don't know another way to do this. And I don't, I did not see the, I saw that more as a a fear reaction that like, we need to get back to it as like, I want to say, if we're going to say faith over fear, like what if we actually believed that if we were willing to just take a step back and give a little bit more time for us to figure out what's happening with the science yeah. Try to figure out how to get our air ventilated better. Why haven't we put our money into that, Emily? Like, this feels like it's not political, but like, what if we were to like, this isn't injecting yourself. Like, right. what if we just <laughs> made our public buildings, the air filtration that much better? Because we learned that so many people that were in poverty did not have the opportunity to just stay home, right? We just yeah. learned there was so much disparity. Like, what if we did the thing? They're like, if people need to be in public spaces, what can we do to make these spaces yeah. more healthy? Instead of just saying, nothing to see here. 
<laughs> right. We have faith. It's going to be fine. Like that, it just makes me really sad that like there are things we could have done. There are things oh, we could have done. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I see what you're saying about the, the leadership and the political mm-hmm. thing. Cause I think if we say, well, I voted for the person, I got to stick with them. Like, what does it say about me? Yeah. And when your identity is so tied up into that, it's a really lonely place when you untangle from that. Oh, for sure. And you don't know if anybody else is going to be with you. Yeah. But also how you talk about it. And because pandemics have not, it's not like it caught us completely off guard. And yeah. so there are tried and true playbooks of air quality and lowering the spread. I mean, with something like Ebola that just happened, it was squashed really quickly because we know what we're doing. Yeah. But I think that that from the top and then it just permeated throughout was not trusted enough. And then it was just playing catch up. That yeah. is the hardest part about looking, at least for me, about the past three years is it just could have been so different had that not had happened. If you were in charge now of all the things, yeah, what would you encourage our faith communities to do in regard to public health, especially when they know that people are just don't know who to trust? Yeah. And like, well, somebody said such and such a thing and then they said something else and then like, I just don't know. Like, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. You're the boss. I think, yeah. I mean, I think finding trusted voices, because for so long, faith and science have been opposite poles, you know, and, and the the faith people think the science people are only going to talk about life or the big bang or whatever. And then the science people think that faith people are going to do the same thing. Yeah. So I think finding voices that are just trusted are going to be, are going to be key. But then also, and I think more churches are doing this, but if churches will recognize that a person is a holistic person. So the woman I talked about in the parable with the bleeding issue, yes, I mean, Jesus stopped the entire crowd for her, but also helped her. And she was at the point of poverty at that time. The Good Samaritan did the same thing. He didn't just heal the man. He took care of expenses. So I think if churches can just recognize the holistic personhood of a person and all of it is holy, I think that would help with public health too, because that's what we do. You know, Mm -hmm. we define the problems and the solutions that matter and that reflect reality through data. Yeah. I talked to somebody recently about disability and access in yeah. the church. And she said it was just really, it was really hard to see that really quick response early on. Like glad that churches were willing to do some things to make all of a sudden like scramble to do like Zoom and other mm-hmm. things. And, and but they're like, she said, we were asking for like these sorts of things for years. Yeah. And we right. weren't worth that work yeah. until like that, that tipping point happened. And that was a hard thing to hear. But I think like, how can we do better? Like there are a lot of accessibility things I think we never had to think about before because we were so protected from it. And if you did not know somebody that had any issues with accessibility, like you could easily be like, well, it's fine. If they need something, they'll let us know. Yeah. And man, what a short-sighted view that is i'm trying to learn from that like yeah like how can we do do better like yeah nobody loves like this isn't anybody's first thing to be like i love wearing a mask 
Like <laughs> nobody's like, yay, we get to yeah. be on screens, but it does. Some things were made possible that weren't before. Yeah. And maybe we can get better at it. Maybe we can make more things possible in a way that is even less and less invasive and, mm-hmm. you know, be willing to be inconvenienced a little. Man, yeah. do not like being inconvenienced, Emily. No. It also <laughs> highlights who is being centered, though, because if we yeah. centered the people that Jesus showed us to, yeah. there's a, a part in the book about take, we take our shoes off because the ground there is holy. Yeah, And so it, I think it stops us in a way where it silences us in the best of ways. But then it also helps us understand the what's next part. Um, and it's just going to take some time. But I, I do think hopefully churches are getting better at recognizing grounds that are holy versus grounds that might just be lucrative. As we wrap this up, I would love to hear you speak to the person that just feels so disoriented and saddened by what they have seen in their, in the evangelical world, especially the white evangelical American church over the last several years. You know, maybe they have had some like I'm thinking of a friend of mine who has a, a, you know, immunocompromised child in their family yeah. and did everything they could to protect yeah. this child and did not see the church really care and is trying to figure out where their place is. And he's, you know, as we're dealing with an ongoing COVID hasn't gone away yet. It looks different. We have different ways to fight it, but like trying to figure out where their place is even in the church. Like, would you speak to them? Yeah. I I think that I would hold a lot of space to just say I'm just sorry. I mean, it's just devastating and it's I think it's hard for families like that or or just people who thought loving your neighbor looked different and their churches are not didn't do it or aren't doing it. What do you do there? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, for us to live into who we think God has made us, it meant leaving. Mm -hmm. And it was awful. So I think if there's any encouragement, it's the encouragement of you. We do live through it. You know, our bodies will hold us. Also, we're worthy enough to maybe find a new community. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, too. What I have been surprised on the other side of finding a new community is that there's a lot of them. Mm. Every communion since I have taken at my new church, I've just cried on every time. There, I keep laughing with my pastor that maybe at some point I'll stop. <laughs> but for now, it just means so much to be in a community that just understands that and we can worship and work together. So maybe that's the encouragement is that there are a lot of people out there, if you're able to, and there's a lot of people who can't because of kids and youth group and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But just to find a new community out there. I don't know if you've gotten to the chapter on Olaf. Yeah. Yes. That's the, ch- that was written for the person that you're talking about. And yeah. just that reaction of thinking that you're going to be by yourself because you're, you've lost everything that you've known. And instead you find yourself in a theater with like little kids just singing. (laughs) You'll have to read the chapter for that context, but yeah. yeah. It almost feels like an impossible dream and a really beautiful promise of like there are other tables 
there's other theaters out there. Um, right. But, and being, not to get so, I would have loved to have gotten here quicker, mm. uh, but I couldn't have rushed the process or my body. And it is just really, really hard during those times. So I think maybe too, those are okay. Yeah. You know, the timetables yeah. that last longer than we want are okay too. And I appreciate you being willing to say, I'm not going to write, put a, a lovely little bow on this, yeah. this little section, this little section of my life. That was really, really hard. Yeah. I think I learned some things. I hope I'm a better person, but man, you know, if you could avoid it, you wouldn't yes. have chosen it. <laughs> here's, here's how not to get there. Don't go viral. <laughs> Let's not get there. So I'm so grateful for the time that you have, you know, invested in just writing the book, coming and sharing with, with this audience. How can we find your book and how can we find you? Yeah. Thank Thank you. Thanks for having me too. These are tender conversations to have. So I've been fairly selective on, you know, who and how to talk about it. So I just appreciate this. You're just, this is great. You can buy the book anywhere books are sold. Anywhere you love to buy books, independent or, you know, they're on the normal Amazon, Barnes and Noble type site. I am at the Friendly Neighbor Epidemiologist on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, mostly Facebook because that's where it blew up. And then I also do a sub stack. If you are social media or you don't do that, you can find me there as well. Well, thank you for swinging by. I cannot wait to finish up the book. I'm about... 70% 70% through. Yay. I think I've got like a, a chapter or two left and then I'm going to go and look through all your end notes. Oh, love. Thank <laughs> you. Cause there's some funny ones in there too, where I, I, I drop a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, write down all the quotes that I thought were so, so helpful for. So thank you so much, Emily. Oh, I appreciate this you. conversation. This was Thanks. great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Emily Smith. I've linked to her Facebook page and her Substack and her new book in the show notes. I would love for you to check those out. Speaking of show notes, that's also where you can go to find the link you can use to send me a personal message sharing what you have loved about the podcast. I plan to use your voices in an upcoming episode to celebrate that we've made it past 100 episodes. You can find that by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash hello. Again, you can find that link in the show notes. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. You've made it possible for me to outsource some of the editing to my friend and audio genius, Josh. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and checking out the bonus goodies offered to my supporters, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pianic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.